Hello and welcome to another episode of the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast with me, Dr. Kirsty McLeod. Have you ever felt like you got where you are out of luck and that sooner or later people are going to find out that you're not so special after all? If you have, you're not alone. This episode's group discussion tackles the common phenomenon of imposterism and how we deal with it in our own lives and careers. That's with Dr. Jessica Cusick, Dr. Emma Bush and Laura Kojima later in the episode. I also talked to Savannah Rogers about her recent paper on grizzly bears in this episode's Paper in Focus segment. First though, Dr. Jessica Cusick is here to tell me about her research on individual variation in cooperative behaviours. That's coming up next on The WE Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Jessica Cusick, an NIH CTRD postdoc at Indiana University, working in the labs of Greg Demas and Kara Wellman, looking at the proximate mechanisms underlying individual variation in cooperative and aggressive behavior. Jessica, welcome to the WE podcast and thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Happy to be here. So I always like to start way back at the beginning. Uh, so how did you get into ecology in the first place? Yeah, so I actually started um, in undergrad nowhere near ecology. I started as a psychology major, actually industrial psychology. I was oh, wow. working at a consulting company, but the focus was sort of in more in cognitive behavior, why individuals might not be, um, might not follow safety practices or things like that. And so really I was in industry <laughs> uh, and I'd always wanted to be a biologist. I'd always wanted to study ecology and sort of pursued what I thought at the time was the, you know, the more, uh, the more typical career, if you will. And I woke up one day my junior year of undergrad and just said, I, I can't do this anymore. I really want to be a biologist. And so I had three classes left in my psychology major. I, I finished those. But as a senior in undergrad, I started biology 101 and didn't look back. Um, I stayed an extra year. I was taking classes over the summer and just worked really hard to be able to get that to get that biology degree. And while I was there, I started getting involved in different research groups and research labs at the university. Um, I was able to get some uh, summer uh, jobs as well, and that sort of led me into into the career. And um, from there, I went and pursued my master's, and that's what really got me started when I sort of fell in love with some of the questions that you can ask uh, in this field. We will get into your master's, but you had yeah. a very cool sounding undergrad project, yeah. uh, which yeah. was on contagious yawning in budgerigars. So tell me about that. <laughs> yeah, so that was a really fun project that actually uh, came about from a some work that some graduate students were doing in the lab I was working in. And we were measuring yawning behavior as a um, cooling mechanism. And so on the side, we were kind of wondering, well, yawning is contagious or, you know, in other animals, we see yawning across taxa. So, you know, is it, could it be contagious in, in these birds? And so um, with the help of some graduate students and another undergrad, we sort of did a small little project to actually play video of birds yawning and to see if the animal's watching um, yawned also. <laughs> and so it was a really cool project. And um, we did see some sort of clusters of yawning. So some evidence that maybe it could be, but uh, it was a really fun project and a 
a really cool project to do. So your master's jumped to a very different study system. So you did your master's at Florida Atlantic working on dolphins. Yeah, um, so this was a, a dream position for me. I was really fortunate to uh, to get to work with uh, the Wild Dolphin Project, which is located out of Jupiter, Florida, and then uh, Denise Herzing, who runs that project, who was my advisor and mentor while I was at Florida Atlantic. I've always been really interested in social behavior and how uh, environment might influence social behavior. And so this was an incredible opportunity to study really highly social organisms and look at how they cooperate and how they interact with each other during aggression. Uh, and so there's two species of, of dolphins that are resident to that area, the Atlantic bottlenose dolphin, which we're more familiar with usually, and the Atlantic spotted dolphin. And they live in this area, they coexist, and they can have some really in intense aggressive interactions. And because of uh, different factors like one species being generally larger than the other, while the other one uh, forming more, being a little bit more gregarious and forming these social, these larger social mm -hmm. groups. It was a great opportunity to sort of test, you know, what matters more or how being larger versus uh, being more likely to form groups could influence that outcome of aggression. Right. So, which is the larger species? The bottlenose dolphin. Okay. So, did that require yeah. a lot of diving? Um, we were able to do everything using snorkel, which is great. The, cool. the Bahamas are nice and clear, <laughs> and so you can see a lot. And um, it was great because we were able to record a lot of really cool behavior and capture a lot of what they were doing underwater as well as at the surface. So it gave us a, a really nice holistic view of what, of what goes on there. Um, and my advisor had been studying that population for, goodness, almost 30 years. So we she knew and had documented large family groups, these large associations. So we knew a lot about the animals we were studying and, right. and who, who they interacted with and who they were related to and things like that. You'd be able to recognize individuals? Yeah, so oh, um, a, uh, the spotted dolphins have uh, spots and they have unique spot patterns that are almost like a fingerprint that you and mm -hmm. I would have. And so by taking photographs, you can actually look and see, you know, these spot patterns and you can match them across years. And so as I finished my master's, I found that cooperation was really important for these smaller sized uh, individuals. They would sort of group up together. And when they did that, they were more likely to, I guess, win or be more likely to be successful when taking on the larger individuals. And so it kind of got me wondering, well, if cooperation is so great, why isn't everyone doing it? And so uh, I was looking for a system where individuals differed in how cooperative they were, and I could study this within a single population. So that led me to Florida State, working with Emily Duvall and Jim Cox at Tall Timbers Research Station, uh, studying the brown-headed nuthatch, which are these super small little birds. Um, they sound like squeaky toys. So if you're ever in the, in the southeastern United States in the middle of the woods and hear a squeaky toy, uh, it's not a, <laughs> it's a brown headed nuthatch and they are cooperative breeders. So that basically means that breeding pairs are assisted or helped by non-breeding helpers. Um, and this is a really cool phenomenon because one of the major questions is, you know, why would these individuals give up reproduction to help other individuals reproduce? And so I was really interested in why individuals differed in this behavior because in our population, we had some individuals cooperating and some weren't. And so it was a great system to try to say, 
what are what are driving these differences what causes these differences so when you say they they vary in how cooperative they are how does that manifest in terms of their what types of behavior are they showing variation in so uh, they'll help by feeding young while they're in the nest. They'll help by feeding the female when she's uh, sitting on the nest and she's incubating eggs. They'll assist in nest defense and things like that. Um, and so there's different ways that in these individuals can vary. So one is just fundamentally, do they form these groups or not? Some breeders form these cooperative groups and have helpers and others don't. Um, and then from this, the other side, some young males go on and help and some young males don't, they try to breed in their first year. So fundamentally you can ask really cool questions about why do some individuals form groups versus, versus not. The other thing you can look at is whether they vary and then how much they contribute. Um, helpers may differ in how much they help, how often they feed, how basically how good they are at helping. And so that's another thing that I was interested in is whether there's sort of variation in the degree to which they actually contribute to the, the breeding effort. How did you find the switch from marine mammals to birds? <laughs> it, it was a really, it was really tough in the beginning. I think I realized the biggest switch for me was uh, learning to look down while I was walking in the forest because in the ocean, I'm always looking sort of out and about and looking mm -hmm. for things. Um, but it was really a great transition. Uh, the, the area that I worked is absolutely beautiful. I had incredible colleagues that worked with me and, and helped me learn how to you know, study birds and how to do all the things you need to be able to do. So uh, I think it was just one of those things where uh, all of a sudden I was walking instead of swimming for most of my job. <laughs> So if you if you could break down the main results of your PhD into a couple of bullet points, what would those results be? Yeah, so um, one, one of the major sort of hypotheses or ideas about why individuals cooperate, especially within cooperative breeding, is that they're helping relatives uh, and they gain some some benefits that way. And so we found that in our population, some individuals do help relatives, but some individuals don't. And so that meant we needed to sort of broaden our our investigation as to what other factors might cause variation in cooperation. And so we found uh, that chicks, so baby birds that differed in how they responded to stress really influenced whether they went on to become a breeder or a helper. Uh, so that was a really big finding that suggests some physiological mechanisms might be underlying variation in behavior. Um, and the other major thing was looking at how uh, other behavioral traits might influence cooperative behavior. And so we looked at whether in uh, breeders, whether they differed in aggression and whether that influenced whether they form cooperative groups. And we found that it didn't. We, we measured how they responded to a model of a nest predator and found that individuals did vary in how aggressive they were, but that that had no correlation with whether they formed cooperative groups or not. Such a cool system. Um, so I have a kind of a sort of philosophical question for you. Ecologists often try to find broad patterns in what we see in nature. So what is it that interests you about individual variation? Yeah, so I think for me, I became really interested in individual variation because understanding what animals do on average is really important uh, and, and tells us a lot about the systems. But the individuals are the ones that are driving the behavior. And so it became important to me to really understand, uh, especially when some of these individuals don't follow the average or don't represent the mean, what's happening or what's going on with those individuals. And so that kind of, I remember at the beginning of my PhD, 
reading the cooperative literature and, and I would go to my advisor and go, something, something's on my mind, something's irking me, and I can't quite figure out what it is. And finally it dawned on me, it's the individual variation that creates these, you know, on average they do this or on average they do that, but it's the individuals that are driving that. And so I really wanted to focus on why they make different decisions. So you are now at Indiana University and doing some very, very cool stuff. As somebody who works on parental effects and on mother, how mothers influence their offspring particularly, I'm super excited about your current research project. So tell us about uh, this project. Sure. So like last time, as soon as I finished my dissertation, I was thinking about you know what's next. And I realized to understand why individuals differ in these physiological mechanisms as juveniles, I was going to need to take one step back and look at development and look at what happens as they develop. And so um, I started working with Greg Demas and Carol Wellman, looking at how the maternal environment can shape offspring development and behavior. And so right now I'm working with Siberian hamsters, um, which were a great system to look at uh, some new physiological mechanisms, or I should say considering some physiological mechanisms that haven't been focused on as much in the past. And one of those was looking at the gut microbiome, which is the bacteria and all the uh, bacteria and fungi and things that are found primarily in the gastrointestinal tract. And so we know from previous work that this system actually has a lot of influence uh, on, on development. Uh, there's the gut brain access, so it can communicate directly with the brain as well as other physiological systems. And so this just seemed like a great opportunity to look at how this system interacts with others to affect offspring. And so I did a, a large experiment where we manipulated maternal experience, we manipulated maternal stress and the maternal gut microbiome to look and see how that affected offspring behavior even 40, 50, 60 days after, uh, after being born. And we found some really cool uh, results um, and sex specific differences, males and females responding differently to, to the treatment. And so um, it really does suggest that the maternal environment can have really strong and long lasting effects on social behavior in their offspring. So you mentioned the gut brain axis, and that's something I, I've done a little bit of microbiome work over the last couple of years. And learning about the gut brain axis, it just completely blew my mind. Yeah. <laughs> so can you break that down a bit for people who haven't come across that yet? Yeah. So we've got the the gut microbiome, so the bacteria and the uh, other symbionts that are living in the in the gut. And so what can happen is there can be this sort of bi-directional communication between the gut microbiome and other systems uh, in the body. And it can have really important effects, not only on behavior, but on development of these networks. Um, so stress, for example, can not only alter the composition of the gut microbiome, but it can um, the gut microbiome then can in turn affect how an individual responds to stress or how their stress response develops. Totally fascinating stuff. So last question, what are your hobbies outside of academia? Um, I love sports. <laughs> I grew up playing sports. I grew up playing soccer and volleyball. So back when you could do that, uh, that's what I would usually do. Um, but I also really, really like music. I've been learning the guitar uh, during quarantine. And so um, <laughs> it's something I've always wanted to do and never sat down and did. And I 
finally said, if not now, then when? And so every day for 15 minutes a day, you know, it was trying to learn a new chord or practice a new, you know, song. And now like six, seven months later, I think I know 10 chords and can play even a couple songs without having to play with the app. So I feel very accomplished in my guitar playing. <laughs> it's a very good use of lockdown. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure my townhouse neighbors appreciate it as much, but <laughs> but I feel like a musician now. So thanks so much, Jessica. It was great to hear about your projects and you're going to stick around for the roundtable discussion. Yeah. Uh, so we'll be back with you in a minute. Thanks. Great. Thank This episode's paper in focus is called Thermal Constraints on Energy Balance, Behaviour and Spatial Distribution of Grizzly Bears. And I'm delighted to be joined by the lead author, Savannah Rogers, a PhD student in the Centre for Research into Ecological and Environmental Modelling at the University of St Andrews. Savannah, welcome to the WE podcast. Thank you. So this study actually comes from your previous master's degree at the University of Idaho. Yeah, so I did my master's degree in bioinformatics and computational biology, which uh, encompasses a lot of things. A lot of uh, the researchers in that program at my university, University of Idaho, also worked with wildlife. So I had the really unique and great opportunity to have access to great mathematics and computer science courses, and also um, some of the best wildlife researchers in the area. So um, that's how I ended up looking at um, wildlife energetics with um, some intensive computer science techniques. How would you define bioinformatics? Yeah, it's mostly, it's the super computer intensive methods for dealing with the huge amounts of data that we're getting with new medical research. So think like the Human Genome Project and just how much information there is when you're researching the human genome. You have to write the computer software to deal with that kind of data and come up with the stats and, and maths techniques to get answers out of that data and bioinformatics kind of encompasses that field. So you were applying those techniques to data on grizzly bears for this paper. Yeah, so um, there's been a lot of research into grizzly bears. Obviously, they're really iconic species, um, especially in North America. The population in Yellowstone is really beloved, um, really well known. I think Bear 399 is like the most famous grizzly bear. She has her own Twitter account. Like <laughs> researchers have looked into like what they eat, um, where that is in the park, like what seasons it's available, et cetera. There's this newer idea in ecology though, that often supply isn't a problem. There's plenty of food on the landscape, um, especially in certain seasons. And instead animals, mammals are limited in how much energy they can spend because for mammals and birds, all these warm-blooded animals, they create heat as a byproduct. So anytime they're spending energy, they're creating heat. And there's a limit to how much heat they can create internally. Um, and that that's actually more limiting in some scenarios than how much energy is available to them. A good way to think about it is if you're driving a car in warmer climates, if you're driving in the desert, um, it's possible that your engine can start to overheat. And when that happens, it really doesn't matter if you have enough gas in your gas tank, right? But you can't spend it because your engine's gonna overheat. So the same thing happens for mammals that um, they produce heat as a byproduct. There's only so much of it they can deal with, with through behavior, through maybe sweating. And so that ends up being a limit. And so while there's been a lot of research into food resources and that supply side of the energy for grizzly bears, there hasn't really been any on this energy expenditure side. And especially we wanted to look at 
female bears and female bears with cubs because it's the females with cubs that have implications for the future of that population, right? Mammals also uh, have some additional heat, female mammals do, from lactation. So lactation is most energetically expensive activity for a female mammal. It also produces a huge amount of extra heat for her. So we know that theoretically, um, females with cubs that are lactating should have more of a limit than females without cubs. But we wanted to get at exactly what that limit was and if that was causing behavioral differences for the bears in Yellowstone. So what were your main findings with um, with this paper? And also it, it was a model-based model paper, right? Yeah, so that's really key here is we did not actually make any bears really hot. <laughs> <laughs> a big part of what I did was collecting really detailed information from some captive bears um, so we could parameterize a computer model to simulate the experience of a grizzly bear. So I had to like measure how dense their fur was, how big they are, how much fat they have, things that would uh, influence like how easy it is for them to get rid of extra heat. The biggest finding was that the activity level of a lactating female um, was much more limited by heat than the activity of non-lactating females. Um, and we did find that this disparity is going to increase as the climate warms. So a lactating female bear, for example, her because her activity is limited, she's stuck in a smaller space? Sure. It could, there's a lot of different ways it could manifest. Mm. Um, we, one of the ways that, uh, that showed up in our modeling is just that the hours of the day in which she can be active are more limited. So mm. like maybe by, for example, like 10 o'clock in the morning, it's already so warm out that sh she can't be out moving around in the sunlight looking for food. Whereas a bear without cubs, she's not limited in that. Um, we wanted to see if this risk of uh, heat stress or kind of the thermal environment, if that was already impacting where lactating and non-lactating bears were on the landscape. Um, but we actually found that it was not the most important driver of bear distributions in Yellowstone right now. Um, elevation, which can be related to different food resources and also is related to proximity to people, um, that was the most important factor for both uh, lactating and non-lactating bears. But we did find that uh, that risk of heat stress, that relative risk of heat stress on the landscape was more important for lactating bears than non-lactating bears. Is Yellowstone expected to heat up considerably? Mm, the models that we looked at, we just read the, um, the, the International Panel on Climate Changes Report, mm -hmm. um, and the predictions for that region are between one and two degrees Celsius. Um, increase yeah in the next hundred years so that's that's kind of the range of temperature increases that we looked at with our simulations to kind of look at what that's going to look like for bears in the future it imposes more constraints there's going to be less hours of the day that the bears can be active and there's going to be less activity that they can do even in those hours um, but luckily there was actually kind of a hopeful finding from our paper some of these behaviors that bears used to cool down so laying on cool ground in the shade or kind of more uh, fun one, getting into bathtubs. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, those actually really do help them cool down. And that that's a strategy that can help them overcome some of those constraints. Mm, okay. um, luckily, bears do have this really cute behavior of getting in the water that hopefully will continue <laughs> to help them. <laughs> so you have now moved on to working on your PhD in Scotland. Are you looking at similar themes? Actually, I'm looking at 
very different themes. <laughs> um, here at the University of St. Andrews, I have this awesome opportunity to learn more about new methods in estimating population size and survival for dolphin populations in the Gulf of Mexico, especially those that were impacted by oil spills. Mm. Um, so something mm. totally different, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but still sort of at that intersection of math, computer science, statistics, and ecology. So you're a relative newbie to St. Andrews, I guess. Yes. Um, it has a big place in my heart because that's where I did my undergraduate degree. Have you found a favorite thing to do in St. Andrews or the surrounding area yet? Oh man, I love being so close to the beach. Um, and it's just such a beautiful walk, especially on mm. West Sands where you can look back and see like the ruins of the castle and the cathedral and the town and definitely enjoying the natural beauty of this place. Well, congratulations on the paper. Thanks. Thanks so much, Savannah. Thank you. Welcome back to the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast and to our roundtable segment. I'm back with Dr. Jessica Cusick and we are joined by Dr. Emma Bush, a postdoctoral research scientist working at the Royal Botanic Garden in Edinburgh, focusing on plants, their role in human society and the climate and biodiversity crises. Hello, thanks for having me on. And we're also joined by Laura Kojima, a graduate student at the University of Georgia in the labs of Benjamin Parrott and Tracy Tuberville. Hi, thanks for having me. Laura, I absolutely love following your adventures and research on Twitter and Instagram, not least because I'm a major herp nerd and you seem to be constantly just bathed in alligators. Uh, so please tell us about your project. What are you working on? So... From a broader perspective, I'm looking at um, the effects of contaminants on American alligators, particularly through their movement behavior. So I'm interested in seeing if alligators can potentially be a vector for contaminants and move them into mm -hmm. different habitats since they use both aquatic and terrestrial ecosystems. And at my study site, um, the alligators that I'm trapping are in a private nuclear, former nuclear reserve. So basically they're just in like super contaminated water, but they have access to public hunting grounds. So I'm also going to be considering the risk of hunting these animals if they end up moving from this contaminated site to the public river. And I'm also seeing whether or not um, they're contaminant levels affect their movement preferences. So if it has any phys physiological or behavioral um, influences on the animal. So yeah, right now it's a cold season, no alligators, um, unfortunately, but I'm looking forward to getting back out in the field this spring and summer and getting my fix. So are they quite robust to being in that level of pollution? Yeah, not, not pollution. I guess conta contamination is that different to pollution? Um, it's basically the same thing. They're pretty yeah. intertwined because the contaminants were anthropogenic source. So in that respect, it, they were pollutants yeah. from uh, these factories because the lake that they live in are is a former. Um, nuclear reservoir. So all these contaminants would just get shoved in this water and settle into the sediment and the animals would move from the river into this uh, reservoir and basically just make a home there. And reptiles are just such sturdy animals that they were doing fine and they were able to create their own little population there for the most part. So yeah, these alligators are just, they're tough. <laughs> 
So you'll be getting back out in the spring? Yes, trapping on the river and getting GPS transmitters out on animals on these public hunting grounds, seeing if they actually move from the river to the um, nuclear reservoir. And I have transmitters already out on alligators that are occupying the reservoir. So I'm just seeing if they're going back and forth um, and potentially either linking habitats, being a risk to hunters and just the other implications that could be found from their movement behavior. That obviously sounds like it requires a lot of intimate contact with alligators, which which really does make for very excellent Instagram content. So oh, yes. uh, yeah, looking forward to to some fresh springtime gator content when you get back oh, in the me field. Too. It's going to be a adventure that's for sure especially with this whole new population and a new study area well we'll make sure that the links to your twitter and instagram are in the episode notes can so people can go follow along that really laura has some fantastic pictures <laughs> Thanks. Uh, so emma i know if there's anyone who can convince me that plants are as cool as alligators it is you uh, so tell us what you're up to at the botanic garden yeah so i've uh, recently joined the botanics um in may so I'm one of, you know, a COVID new recruit who's never actually seen my office or um, met many of my colleagues in person. Um, so I guess generally I am a plant and ecosystem scientist and my research is quite broad. It spans kind of both quantitative and qualitative methods. Um, for the last like six, seven years, my focus has been on the phenology of tropical plants, particularly in Central Africa. So that's the timing of different life cycle events. And especially like thinking about the climate change impacts on these processes. Um, but in my move to the botanics, I've made a step more into climate adaptation. Uh, so I'm continuing the phenology work, but the, my main focus at the moment is um, the role of nature in urban environments for climate adaptation and resilience. So when you say climate adaptation, do you mean uh, at plant adaptations to warming or just gen- no actually thinking about people people adapting mm. so um, oh, okay. yeah I kind of uh, I spent the last few years looking at the um, how plants were responding to climate change and we've we've found some pretty big changes that we think um, at my study site in in Central Africa that have been linked to warming and um, I was already doing some uh, work alongside that on uh, people's indigenous ecological knowledge. So I've kind of wanted to move a little bit more into um, sort of adaptation science, so more more on the society side of things. How do we respond? Um, how can we integrate nature more into the responses that we come up with and how we adapt to the kind of changing world? And how is working in a botanic garden? Well, I was really looking forward to it. I guess you're not really, are you? <laughs> Um, I, I haven't moved very far. So I was at the University of Stirling before, which is just an hour away from Edinburgh. So I used to come in to the library, um, but I was really looking forward to getting to know the herbarium and getting to know the, you know, the, the, the specialists there, the botanists, and also the horticultural team as well, and being able to walk around the gardens in my spare time and, and spend time in the plant houses and all this kind of thing. And um, obviously none of that has happened and I'm actually on maternity leave from the end of May. So I don't think I'll be able to go in before then. But hopefully after that, that yeah. will be a wonderful thing to do. It's lovely to be surrounded by um, such plant enthusiasts. 
you know, at university settings before, people are obviously like interested in lots of different things, but it's 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 really nice to be surrounded by that kind of depth of knowledge. So just going back to your plant work, um, you set up the African Phenology Network. Do you want to tell us a bit about that? Yeah, sure. That's one of my favourite topics to talk about. Yeah, so I started working in phonology in Central Africa around 2014, and I joined a um, a long-term data project that had been going on since the 1980s, and there's a huge amount of people involved in that research, and I joined the team as kind of archivist and analyst, and I was able to, you know, visit the site and, and do, do bits of research and um, fieldwork, but, you know, I've kind of got that there's some people really making this work on the ground, you know, in Central Africa every month in, in Lope and Gabon, um, collecting this data. And there's been other sites like that throughout Central Africa that are um, mostly motivated by primatology research. So people who've been recording, leafing, flu- uh, fruiting, flowering from, from tropical trees in, in Central African forests for um you know, at my site for 34 years now, um, wow. they have created these really, really valuable botanical data sets in their own right. And there had been quite a bit of work to try and connect these people together. Yeah, there wasn't like a sort of integrated network. And I think there's been some real successes in like the European Phenology Network and the U- USA Phenology Network and the way that people have been able to standardize methods between sites, then do some really powerful analyses across sites. So I was also meeting other scientists at conferences, particularly um, early career scientists from various African countries who were setting up new research projects, but didn't really know what methods they they could be using to kind of link into the kind of wider efforts so I started keeping hold of those people's contacts and we now have formed basically an expert network so we don't actually we don't have any funding so it's just a website and a twitter feed and we just keep in touch with each other and we've we've got big plans and we would like to get funding to do a lot more um but it's 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 small beginnings but hopefully it can grow from here so getting down to business Today, we are talking about imposter phenomenon, which is something that research suggests around 70% of people will experience at some point. And it's defined as an illogical or irrational sense of not being good enough to be in the position you find yourself in, coupled with a fear of failure and an inability to accept your own successes and achievements as being your own. And research indicates that women in STEM fields are particularly susceptible. So in preparation for this recording, I sent Jessica, Emma and Laura an online list of questions that gives you an imposter phenomenon score. So let's start with that. If you want to tell us what your score is and did it did it surprise you? And I will start by saying that I got I got an 83 out of 100, which is like like a worryingly high level of <laughs> imposterism. I got the same. <laughs> and I was like, oh, wow. Yeah. I have a lot to talk to my therapist about. <laughs> right. I got 84 as well. And so- <laughs> oh, yeah. So we were all up in the higher regions. Emma, I think you, you told me your score before and yours was... Yeah, I was 50. Four. So moderate imposterism. So that's... um, Which I wasn't too surprised about. I have definite feelings of imposterism but mostly to do with my circumstances of my like my work-life pattern and and how that exposes me to whether or not I can live up to people's expectations rather than some of the feelings to do with 
whether like I am able to do it if I had all the time in the world. Yeah, I was I was not surprised either. And I think just I tried to think about what maybe there were different questions and different kinds of questions and like which questions I was like, yeah, that's definitely me. And I think that some of the questions for me was had a lot to do with uh, new things and also um, not recognizing or not uh, focusing on areas where I would struggle or had challenges as opposed to like focusing on all the things that I've succeeded in. And those were the questions I went back and like relooked at the questions and I'm like, yeah, those were the ones that I was had no problem answering and was super quick to be able to answer. And I think for me, some of this probably comes from, I've switched study organisms so many times throughout my career that each time, you know, I get to a stage of I've mastered this, I've got it. And then I switch organisms and everything I thought I knew, I have to relearn. And so I, I even switching to my postdoc, um, I was working with birds in my PhD. I was like, I know how to do this. I know how to do this. And, you know, come to my postdoc. I know how to collect a blood sample from an animal. And then it's totally different in this, in this species. And I have no idea how to do it. And I have to spend three weeks learning, which is great. Uh, except that I feel like that kind of creates this roller coaster of I feel like an expert oh my goodness I know nothing I feel like an expert oh my goodness I know nothing pattern (laughs) yeah that really resonates with me because I mean as we were talking about before we've had quite similar research paths Uh, so I started out in behavior really like pure behavior ecology research and started doing hormone work and physiology work in my second postdoc so I saw somebody tweeted the other day about how you can f- still feel at the end of your PhD like like you're learning completely new things. And I was like, that was me in my second postdoc. Like I and I and I also switched study systems a lot. So again, like I just about figured out how to take blood from a bird. <laughs> and then it was like, well, here's a lizard and you have to put a capillary tube in its eye. <laughs> Laura, how about you? Were you surprised by your score? I think I had anticipated to be pretty moderate to high, but a lot of the questions that were asked, I didn't even realize that that was a part of imposter syndrome, which threw me off. The main ones being like, is it hard for you to accept compliments or praise about your intelligence or accomplishments? Do you not tell people when you're going to have an accomplishment until it's either set in stone or even after the matter of the fact, because you're afraid of criticism? And I was just like, oh man, I didn't realize that that was all part of imposter syndrome because I definitely go out of my way to avoid even telling my advisors when I do something. And I think I'm aware that I put a lot of pressure on myself, especially as a first year master's student. But um, I guess I never anticipated having like this bad of imposter syndrome so quickly into my graduate career, considering an undergrad, like I was you know, putting myself out there doing a lot of cool research, and I didn't really have much doubt in myself. And so I think graduate school is just such a different atmosphere of underlying competitiveness that it gets more um, amplified and to the point that you have to acknowledge like, okay, this is what's happening. Because before I I know I I knew what imposter syndrome was. I never thought that I'd be someone that has, has gone through it as much as I have. And I try to remind myself grad school's temporary and like, you know, be proud of X, Y, and Z, but also it's kind of hard when you have this nagging little voice in your head telling you like, but what about this person who's done this? Or what if 
you know, Ben and Tracy see this and they don't think it's good enough. And I need to really change my mindset so that things are good enough for me and not for the sake of anyone else. Do you also think that perhaps academics, like the people that get into academia, perhaps are people who are perfectionists Mm -hmm. and Emma, you're nodding. Yeah, I'd written perfectionism down there. Um, because one of the areas when I was thinking through um, which parts of like the research journey do I feel this more on, uh, it was definitely learning how to publish without collapsing into imposter syndrome. I think there's something about putting something, setting it in stone and publishing it and it being at that final stage that one I think most scientists are perfectionists. So we rather be at the stage where we're redrafting and reanalyzing because there's always a chance to learn something new and to to be able to edit what you've done. And I think at first I approached it that that end product had to be perfect. And that if it wasn't like, I'd be found out at that point because everyone can read it and I'm not there to defend myself when they read it. Definitely my first paper I published like there was a little bit of press interest in it and I just couldn't cope with that and I said no and you know I just I didn't really have the support to kind of engage with that so so maybe my score would have been higher then. Do the rest of you also feel like you struggle to accept compliments and praise that was something that Laura mentioned? Yeah actually that struck me as something that I don't think I realized I did until looking back at the things I've accomplished so maybe I think hand in hand of achieving goals or, you know, getting the scholarship or getting this fellowship and not allowing or not getting maybe as excited, not telling people as much. And then I look back and I see this chain of accomplishments that I think I didn't always showcase or share or, or really recognize even in myself at the time. So I do think that that's an area where I try to like, look back and say, look, you've done it. Or even, you know, look, you've switched study systems before, you've done it successfully, you can do it again. But yeah, I think it stems from not acknowledging my, in my own self accomplishments and 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 remembering them and, and recognizing them, but also then, yeah, not sharing them potentially as much as others might. I was really forced to face this recently, I guess, when I, I sent um, a cover letter for a job application to a mentor. And I've kind of avoided doing that I think because I find it kind of embarrassing to share those things. And her main feedback was that I was massively, massively underselling myself. Um, So that kind of forced me to recognize that I also struggle with that. Or I think a lot of the time if people will say, will compliment me on something that I've achieved, I, I will brush it off as luck. That was the question that I think most resonated with me. Like how, how likely are you to attribute your success to luck? And I think that's a difficult thing to talk about in academia because we do tend to talk about luck playing into things a lot. Some elements of science are luck. And then I guess it's knowing when to accept that it actually was your hard work. I've been thinking about this as well, being, you know, applying for jobs and I have a lot of feedback I've gotten is, oh, you know, sometimes it just depends you know, what jobs are available at this time, you know, and, and people have told me stories of, oh, yeah, that, you know, I didn't get it on this round, but the second year I did, and it was just luck that there were more jobs and, and you know, available the second round or more things that have fit for me. And, you know, it does sort of make you wonder that sure, part of that is definitely, yeah, whatever, you know, you can't help what jobs are available in any given year. But then to, to make sure you don't take away from what it means to then get that job or get that scholarship or get that fellowship, 
when you actually do it. Were there any other questions that stuck out? I think for me, or a couple questions that I wrote them down, but they were all, I think I sort of mentioned the same theme of, but the one is, I'm afraid I will fail a new assignment despite doing well in the past, which definitely resonated to mm. me because that's some, as I said, with switching systems and learning new things, like I, I know I have done it successfully before, and yet I still um, have this. And there were a couple questions with a similar theme that were really resonated to me. I think that question also definitely resonated with me. Um, I am very bad at like saying no to stuff. And I also really like pushing myself to go out of my comfort zone and try new things. But with that comes stress with, am I going to be able to produce material that's good enough? Do I actually have enough time to put in 100% towards this? So what's going to be the outcome if it ends up being like half-assed? And so I think there's definitely a wariness that comes with taking on those kind of new tasks or opportunities, even if it's somewhat similar to something I've done or just completely different. I mean, one of the things that really intrigued me about my graduate degree was it was about a topic that I didn't really know much about, when, especially with ecotoxicology, the interaction of uh, contaminants in the environment. I had never done anything with that before. So I really wanted to not only apply just because I love reptiles and amphibians, so I wanted to work with alligators, but because it was a completely new topic and I wanted to push myself outside of just general conservation. And I think with that definitely came a lot of nerves with trying to immerse myself in the ecotox world, but I don't hesitate to not try something that might be out of my comfort zone or new to me. And I know sometimes with very bad imposter syndrome, it can completely result in people just like backing off from those type of opportunities. We, we may have covered some of this, but what have your personal experiences been with feelings of imposterism? So did they come at particular times and what helped you get through them? Yeah, so like I touched on earlier, I think um, kind of the, the publishing part is is a trigger for me um that's definitely changed over time but also can be triggered again by you know publishing in a new area or publishing in a big journal or um you know any anything that can kind of make you feel a little bit more on the edge of your expertise and a bit more exposed earlier this year I published in science as a first author and that was like full of lots of hurdles to get over you know even like submitting or like kind of considering publishing there you know maybe maybe we should go to another journal so that we don't have to just waste our time getting rejected and that kind of thing and actually taking a moment to to kind of not let those things those feelings kind of determine then what you did and like work out how you would cope with it but actually that ended up being a really great experience because I co-first authored that paper with a colleague and a friend. It was a really different way of writing a paper for me. It was the first time I'd ever done that. And we made like joint decisions all the way. We kind of were responsible for different parts of the paper. But then in the kind of publishing point and the bit where you really like are feeling a lot of adrenaline and nerves when people are actually coming to you with with interest in your paper and generally it was all really positive you felt like you had a t you were part of a team and I think in academia you often don't feel that even though you have advisors and and things you you feel like a um a lone ranger um and I just that really saved that whole experience for me and I, I definitely will be trying to work in that way again yeah I definitely agree with Emma when respect to anything that makes you feel exposed is 
uh, like when it gets triggered the most. And my experience since I'm just starting out, I think it's a lot of um, like conferences and talking about my research. And even though it's my own research, you have to care about what people think because obviously you want your um, information to be presented in a way that you know gains attention, but also you have to do what works for you and just like take pride in the accomplishment that you even got asked to present or that you have enough material to present. But yeah, definitely moments where you're exposed are kind of when the imposter syndrome is just hidden hard. Isn't it funny, like nobody looks forward to getting questions at the end of presentations. It's like you were saying, Laura, you, you feel exposed, even though you're the expert on that talk. Someone told me when I started grad school, I forget who, but I was advised it's okay to say you don't know. And so I've gotten really, I've tried to get really comfortable and accepting of the fact that there are still things I don't know. I think just those three words um, I've had to come to terms with being able to use. Some of the best mentors I've had have been really good at doing that too, actually. And just saying like, you know, I'm not, I'm not really up on this statistical method. Can you explain it to me? It's always really refreshing to see somebody say, I don't know. And you're like, oh man, I don't know either. That makes me feel so good. <laughs> I think um, both for presenting and, and publishing kind of have similarities because there are these moments in time when you have to, you know, pin down what you think. But it's really helped me to see both of those um you know times as part of a conversation and science is an ongoing conversation you know people change their mind years later about things that they published or presented and that's okay that's science that's actually really good science so I've just found it quite helpful to kind of take that first step towards starting the conversation to to kind of try and counter some of my own feelings of imposterism accepting before you even start what you're contributing to is a conversation not an end point. I think one of the, the two things that have stuck me throughout the conversation has been like having and finding a good support system because and I have like wrote this down. I wrote that, you know, science is not something you do alone. And um, Emma, when you were talking about this co-authorship of this, you know, this paper and joint, right. I mean, that's it. Right. Or when you have supportive colleagues and, and people that can, you can talk with. When I was at graduate school at Florida state, we had a graduate ecology and evolution group that met once a week you know this was a place where you could present a practice a talk or present new data or present ideas and stuff like that and and we actually every year had a mental health like day (laughs) for our meeting and we talked about imposter syndrome a lot and we use these uh I don't know like those word cloud things you can like text in your answer and it doesn't it's anonymous but you see like you know the people that are texting in the same words the words get bigger and bigger on the screen and it, it was interesting because you could watch the conversation change as soon as it was like look how big this one word is that we all feel and yet nobody talks about at all ever you know we all are at different stages in the graduate program here and we're all feeling this and I think identifying it and getting it out in the open in a safe again surrounded by safe colleagues or friends or people that you know you trust and you work with helps get that like scariness down right and we're all going through this in some way yeah so i guess that brings me on to the next topic that i wanted to talk about so something i hadn't considered until i read a really great article by christine Liu, who's a phd student at berkeley is that the idea of imposter phenomenon can kind of let toxic workplaces off the hook 
so it provides something to blame for people not feeling like they're welcome. It promotes the acceptance of overwork, undercompensation, and this feeling that you have to just put up with these things to fit in. So I wanted to know what your thoughts were on this, because I think there's arguably a risk if we talk about imposter phenomenon as, oh, it's just something that we all feel and it happens to everybody. Does that normalize just feeling crappy in your job <laughs> uh, when maybe we should potentially be focusing more on improving the system so that people don't feel like that? Oh, 100%. Yeah, I think as scientists, we should think, okay, something's happening, we want to find out the source of why it's happening, not just let's normalize what's happening and move on and get over it. No, we're scientists, we should want to know why this process is going on. And I definitely think the overwork aspect stood out the most to me because one thing I realized within a week of starting grad school was that I can't take any days off. And that I was like, is unacceptable to me. I need time to refresh, let alone my hours are really weird. I'm working from two in the afternoon till five in the morning. And so, because my, my <laughs> gators, I catch them at nighttime and then I have to go and deal with all their biological samples and make blood smears and all that. And I have to do that when the blood's fresh. And thankfully I only did that once or twice a week, but it took quite a while to recover from those days. And I'd be thinking to myself, I need to keep going. I need to do this, this, and that. And I realized that's not sustainable. I'm just going to probably either end up getting sick um, and feeling super fatigued. And so I made myself take two days off after a trapping day, even if it was in the middle of the week. And my advisors were super supportive of it. And so I realized the only person who was telling myself to keep working that kind of grind was just me and no one else was expecting that out of me. And, you know, on social media, everyone's like, oh, I have imposter syndrome. I have imposter syndrome. But the real question is why and how can we change yeah. that so that it's not just like some quirk, like, oh, I have imposter syndrome too. It's like, no, it's not cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And even if, um, in academia, you're recruiting for certain personality types, you know, people's kind of hard work ethic and the inquiry that scientists have to like want to get to the bottom of something and therefore go beyond like normal office hours in order to do that or sort of perfectionist streaks and those kind of things. You can't just ignore that that also will come along with more, you know, greater likelihood of people feeling this way. So it is a responsibility of academic institutions to really engage with this side of the, their workforce, it, it definitely feels like there's been movements towards that, um, especially in the last maybe five years. I, I certainly feel this more, I, I've worked part-time ever since I had my first child in 2017 and I obviously had a maternity leave. And I've had some really great experiences since then in terms of not being made to feel like the only one. So my first conference, back actually during my maternity leave I'd helped to organize it so I went along and I wasn't the only person sort of breastfeeding or also they provided some funding to help with kind of childcare during it which didn't make you feel like oh I don't belong here but I, f I feel like I, I have to make it really clear that I work part-time so that I don't feel like I'm being judged against people who work full-time and I think there's a kind of combination of the sort of toxic environment of academia with working all hours and that and that kind of thing that's kind of expected well how do you how do you combine that when you when you really can't work all hours yeah 
I want people to feel supported in feeling these feelings because I think we all do, but without it being like, well, that's just the way it is, you know? And I think that's a difficult, a difficult balance to strike. Uh, so last question, which feeds into that, I guess, what advice would you give to people who are struggling with these feelings? I think my, the thing I tell myself is that it's temporary and I try to remind myself of the things that I have done to get to where I am and that it wasn't just based off of luck or handouts. It was because I worked towards it. One thing that I'm trying to not do is compare myself to others in respect to like, well, because this person didn't do this, this and that, they're not where I'm at to make myself feel better. But that in itself is almost a form of imposter syndrome or how imposter syndrome gets aggravated is because you're comparing yourself to other people. So I just try to find um, this happiness within myself. I think for me, um, a lot of it has been talking about it and, and talking about it with others as Laura said, like acknowledging it in yourself, right? And But I think surrounding myself with and supportive colleagues and supportive friends that are willing and able to chat about like we are today, right? Just is a constant check-in to remind myself that, you know, I'm not alone in how I'm feeling. And the more we talk about it, the more it becomes something that then when I am feeling it, I go, oh, I know exactly what that is. And I can brush it, you know, try to brush it away or do the things I do to, to help alleviate it. Uh, it gets out of your own head and, and it doesn't go away. <laughs> it doesn't, you know, it, it comes at all stages. I used to think that like, when I graduated my PhD, it'll be like, ta-da. And then I like just started a postdoc and I was like, nope, still got it. It still shows up. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of what I would say has been, you know, covered by Laura and Jessica. I think maybe sometimes, I don't know, we can think it's just unique to academia, but actually there's, there's some great help out there for, um, if you're, you know, suffering with anxiety, for example, which I think can feed into imposter syndrome, there's, you know, there's some really great support that you can get for that, whether that's within the professional environment or, um, you know, through friends, try and get support for that. But I think I think this whole chat about the toxic environment is really important. And when maybe you do really feel that kind of imposterism triggered before kind of just sinking into that feeling, maybe stop and think, is it is it me or, or is it the environment? And if it is something that's not right in the environment, then, you know, it doesn't have to be you alone, but see how like you or your <laughs> your department or something can try and challenge that aspect of it that's making multiple people feel that way. And again, that, that you can only really do that by talking to other people. So you have to sort of reach out um, and just work with work with great people. If there's somebody who really, really triggers imposterism in you, however great they are as a scientist, just don't work with them. It's really not worth it. Using the, the mute button on Twitter with abandon has also helped me a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yes. uh, so I think we'll leave it there. Thanks so much. I th that was a fantastic discussion. I really enjoyed that. Yeah, thanks for having us. And it was really nice getting to interact with you ladies. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Women in Ecology and Evolution podcast. As always, you can find links to the paper in focus and everything else we've mentioned today in the episode notes on the website, thewepodcast.org. You'll also find links there to get in touch with me, subscribe, as well as all of the previous episodes. If you've enjoyed this episode, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. 
and make sure to follow along on Twitter and Instagram at the underscore we underscore podcast. I'll be back in a few weeks with my guest Amy Chu talking about reptile biomechanics and the intersection of art and science. So make sure you're subscribed so you don't miss that. Until then, stay safe and bye for now.